1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thielina Lutti, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, as ever, our arts editor is with us here. Lucy, hello.
2: Hello. How
0: are you? I'm all right. Um, I got my words in the wrong order there because I'm just very excited. Um, last week we had David in Johannesburg's delicate flute rendition, and this week the writer Thomas Morris, usually to be found exploring the history of medicine, has brought his cello to the challenge. I feel the ante being up.
2: It is terrific, isn't it? Because it's something else. Yeah, it's just wonderful. And to say, has anyone else got one? Hey, presto, we've well. got a brilliant one.
0: <laughs> no, and if anyone else is bold and talented enough to, to refresh our theme tune, uh, please do. I suspect no other podcast has launched such an appeal and we, we may yet find out why. I'm still, um, um, <laughs> just to say, I'm still
2: holding out for the, the, the theremin or the swanny or slide whistle. Just just putting well, it out there. But the
0: Swanee and the slide is the same. It is, it is yes. Is it? Yeah, it is. It I is, hadn't okay. realised
2: that yet. It's the same thing.
0: Okay, well, that is, that is the challenge. Uh, <laughs> email me or find the TLS on Twitter and at it. Coming up on this week's show, who could fail to be pulled in by an article that begins, Keats and Mrs. Jones had a thing going on. They had a feeling that it was wrong, so they kept very quiet about it. Her identity has always remained a puzzle, leading some biographers to frustration and others to outlandish speculation. Jonathan Bate will share some theories about this Mrs Jones. And we'll canter through this week's pages, covering everything from Dante in the 21st century to Wagner's debt to Iceland. But first, Lucy, over to you.
2: It took centuries to work out the social and political implications of movable type. Why would anyone think we'll be able to crack the internet by next Tuesday? This is the question put by Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of The Guardian and now principal of Lady Margaret Hall, Oxford, and chair of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. He's writing about Bellingcat, the investigative body which has revealed facts and details about events happening all across the world, from the Arab Spring to the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, as the founder of Bellingcat, Elliot Higgins, has just published a book on its origins and methods, and we're delighted that Alan Rusbridger is here today to talk to us about it. Alan, many thanks for joining us. Hiya. Um, first of all, could you could you explain how Elliot Higgins started and set up Bellingcat?
3: Yeah, he was Elliot Higgins was the archetypal nerd in in his bare bedroom. I mean, al- almost literally. He he'd been working in a he was a, a Leicester office worker in his early thirties, and either became fed up with his job or lost his job, but. Um, Uh, found himself increasingly um, whiling away his time talking to his computer in his bedroom and discovered that he was rather good at uh, seeking out information that either nobody else was interested in or knew how to access.
2: And so was he, do you think he was one of the people, I know the internet had been around for a while by then, but do you think he was one of the people who grasped the possibilities, what was happening and how you could use it quite early on? I think
3: so. I mean, you know, with, within newspapers at the time, and, and and The Guardian, I think, was, you know, as, as advanced as anybody, you were working with a, a newsroom of, of, you know, highly experienced journalists who had spent their life using different kind of techniques, in, including on-the-ground reporting. Um it, you know, it was a long time in many newspaper offices before you had computers that were connected to the outside world. Uh, for a long time, we had giant ATEX machines that um, spoke to each other uh, but didn't uh, access the Internet. And so traditional journalists, I think, were caught on the hop, I think, by this generation of, of um, geeks uh, who uh, were very early into the Internet. Uh, and... Um, and and were slow to uh, realize the possibilities that lay there for reporting.
0: And what were the what were the first sort of sorts of things that Elliot Higgins? What did he start to look into, and how did he set about it? What what tools did he use?
3: Well, I, I, as far as I know, and and the book names lots of uh, open source tools, lots of which I've never used and had never heard of. But i, I suppose in those early days he would have started with. Google um, and and then Google Maps and then Google Earth and and um, tools that were you know reasonably um, common uh, and he discovered he was very interested in the in the Arab Arab Spring you know ob- obsessively interested and and was following it and and he discovered again which I think a lot of um, mainstream journalists were too uh, proud if you like to notice that that this was a revolution that was being live streamed, that that there were um, thousands, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people in in, in those um, uh, Middle Eastern and North African countries who were recording and broadcasting and and documenting what was going on. Uh, And he rather enthusiastically started um, hanging out on chat boards and comment sections, including the guardians. Uh, And and he became rather interested in 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 weaponry and um, uh, and who who was using what arms and how you could detect what weaponry had been used from shrapnel and stuff like that.
2: And do you think it's partly because he you you quote him as quoting this extraordinary observation uh, which was made by the Michael Flynn, the former director of the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency the quote is that the secret sources used to contribute 90% of valuable intelligence and then he says after the arrival of social media it was the opposite 90% of worthy intelligence came from open sources available to all
3: yeah again uh, that was a very striking thing to me uh, uh, I, I mean i suppose it's it's kind of obvious if you think about it so if you, if you think how reporting used to be done you know you would you would send your correspondent off to the Middle East and it, it, most most papers could afford to have one person in the Middle East, but perhaps two. Um, uh, and um, then suddenly you've got this these simultaneous revolutions in five, six, seven countries. It, it, it was beyond the, the resources of any newspaper really to have the human intelligence to uh, monitor all that on the ground, uh, and it, it coincided precisely with the time where social media was was. Um, being born, uh, and so suddenly you had thousands of voices, and and what what it needed was people to pick out the interesting voices from the nutty voices, or the or the hate-filled voices, or the you know, the agitators, and and try and work out the signals that would be reliable. Um, and I'm not surprised, that on reflection, that, that that ended up being a, a ratio of ninety percent to ten percent.
2: Yeah, it's, but it's just when you when you hear about it that way that it's 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 turned intelligence gathering as it were on, on its head. It's I mean, you say it needs a very particular kind of as you say you've got to you have to join all the chat rooms. It's not a question of one search, is it? You have to go very deep into the photographs and the chat rooms and the threads and everything. It, you say it's for a, a particular kind of sort of researcher, if you like.
3: Yes, I, I think um, you know it's it suits a certain kind of brain and um, sensibility. Uh, I, 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 I couldn't do it. Um, I couldn't be, begin to do it. Um, but but as, you know, people whose brains are wired in that way, and who, um, you know, have got the, the curiosity and the patience and the know how and the sort of obsessive um, uh, inter- uh, interest to, to follow tiny clues down, down the ultimate rabbit warren. Uh, those are the people who combined because the other point was that these these were although these were lone individuals in as it were their bedrooms they were combining with each other through social media uh, and saying look you know I'll I'll look here if you look there and can anybody identify this and help me out here uh, you know give me some help on this particular angle so it was like a sort of squad of private investigators collaborating in the open on platforms like Twitter to solve um, nutty problems.
2: Yes. And it's not only the collectiveness, but the, in the open, do you think that comes in part from a, from a tech philosophy? Because there's a very strong strand of tech, isn't there? That's keen on open source and shared information, anti-monopoly, that kind of thing. Do you think that the philosophy comes from there?
3: Absolutely. And, you know, that was the, the great battle, um, 10, 15 years ago, and and maybe still is, this this battle between open and closed. And um, most of the engineers that I worked with at The Guardian were on the side of open. They they thought there was a a new kind of utopian way of running the world in which everything would be open sourced and uh, the the product of collaboration and, and joint creativity. Uh, and I have to say that Cat is one of the most outstanding examples that sort of um, reinforces that idea of how things could be done.
2: Yeah, because they sort of made a leap sideways from it not being uh, engineering and tech into let's apply this somewhere else.
3: Yeah, and I mean, it, it was happening a bit in journalism. I mean, this, some of the most interesting journalists I, I worked with realised that instead of working as reporters, traditionally did, which was, you know, I'm, I'm onto this story. I don't want anybody else to know I'm on this story because I want it to be my story, uh, started going out and and saying openly, I'm working on this story. Please help me. I mean, we, we had a journalist called Paul Lewis um, who who did that when the G20 met in uh, London in, I'm guessing this was about around about 2010. And do you remember there was a, a, a news seller Uh, who died in in the heart of uh, a a crowd outside the G20. And Paul just openly tweeted saying, I don't necessarily believe the official story. Were you there? Could you look on your cameras to see if you've got any evidence? And then he really did what Bellingcat did and, you know, combined the maps, the time of day, the film, uh, and eventually he came across a, a piece of video that, that showed that this guy had been hit from behind by a policeman He hadn't died of a heart attack he'd died because he hit his head on the ground and and so you know people watched that kind of reporting and thought well actually maybe there's a kind of reporting that is better done in this open source way rather than privately
0: and, and just to I mean just to give a sense of what all this has achieved I mean I wonder whether we could mention some of the you know, belling cat's greatest hits if you, if you like you know what the, some of the the some of the cases that have that have have defined its arrival because it sort of has come out of nowhere almost to now being um something that most people will recognize and we hear about all the time
3: yeah well he he, he began to concentrate on on, on um, I mean once he'd sort of you know got his long big trousers on and and graduated from the from the chat boards and the, the Guardian live blog where he used to go in and uh, offer his thoughts and that uh, they started to have their, their own platform uh, and a, a team of people, of like-minded people, uh, uh, none of whom I think were being paid at the time. They then started concentrating on Syria and Syria uh, we know was, was becoming an impossible story for any conventional war reporter to uh, report, particularly after the, the death of Mary Colvin. Uh, and so, really, the only way of reporting it was virtually, uh, and they became w- w- literally world experts in in weaponry. And and when, for instance, you know, one side claimed that the other side had been guilty of a gas attack or a uh, or, or some kind of atrocity, they would look at the social media around the weaponry and say, "Well, no, actually, we can definitively say it was this side, not that side." Um, and so there were. Uh, some famous breakthrough moments where uh, they started um, beating not only the world's press, but I suspect many of the world's intelligence services.
2: And you say that they were, um, at the beginning, certainly they were, you think they were working, uh, they were unpaid. How, how does the money work? How does the organisation of the money work now? Who funds it? And are they professional or amateur, the investigators? Well, I
3: think increasingly <clears throat> um, people became, fascinated by how they kept um, turning up this material that no one else could. Uh, and um, th- they got some money from academia um, for, for, for a while. I don't know if they still are. Um, Higgins was attached to the, the War Studies um, Department at King's College London. Uh, and Philanthropic uh, uh, institutes started giving the money to. And I, I think they've now got a turnover of about a million. And something like 30, uh, I was going to say journalists, contributors, um, investigators, whatever you want to call them. They don't really have a um, a name. I think it's 30 contributors and 18 full-time employees. So it, it's grown into a proper professional operation.
0: That's interesting in itself, isn't it? The fact that we don't really know what to call them. We don't really know what to call Bellingcat. I mean, is it is it fair, do you think, to feel some sort of unease about about that side of it? If, you know, for something, for an organization that is about accountability and all of that sort of thing, is there a scenario in which we need to be able to say what Bellingcat is and and, and all of that sort of thing?
3: Yes, I mean, you know, my, my instinct with all information these days is to be skeptical, in, in, including about mainstream information. You know, I, I think there's never been more misinformation and disinformation Swilling around us all the time. So I think it's right to be skeptical about them. Their answer to that, I think, is, well, we, we open source everything. We, we, we don't expect you to believe us. That, that was the old school way. Um, you know, old, old school journalists would say, look, you know, trust, trust me because I work for the Daily Beast um, uh, and I, I've got my sources and you're going to have to believe my sources. What we do, it is is all open source. So you can follow our trail and you can choose to believe it or not, but 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 it'll be based on evidence.
2: Um, and when you you're talking about the, the disinformation and everything swirling around because uh, you say that Higgins says um Bellingcat will act as a firewall against disinformation. And that has been put to the test, hasn't it, under <laughs> Donald Trump's presidency and to some extent the the pandemic by what he calls the counterfactual community, hasn't it?
3: Yes. I mean, there, there, there are so many layers to this of, of people who are deliberately out there creating bad content and, and, uh, and, um, and lies. Uh, and then there are people uh, who are followers of conspiracy theories or people who live in echo chambers and people who are um, ideologically attached to one pole or other of, of the political spectrum. So there are all kinds of players. And there are, of course, billions of them. Uh, and we don't fully understand the the role of the networks and the platforms in amplifying some voices and not others. So it is it is it is chaos out there at the moment.
2: And, and partly because I mean, he says the the sometimes there are stated aims. People now they kind of I guess people now are a bit aware of what Bellingcat are doing. So they're putting stuff out to sort of flood to put noise out there, if you like, to try and hide some other stuff.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're much more high profile now, and and there are lots of conspiracy theories that have been circulating or deliberately circulated about them. Uh, I mean, they've done very well on Russia, for instance, and they they were um, first on to uh, demonstrating who shot down the Malaysian Airlines flight, and they followed up with a spectacular um Scoop uh, identifying the the two agents who visited allegedly Salisbury Cathedral before um, attempting to murder uh, Sergei Skripal. Um, so the Russians are not their friends, and the Russians we know are are prime agents in in spreading disinformation and saying look these these guys are not genuine; they're British intelligence.
2: Um, and given that they are now, everybody kind of knows about them, and they've had these 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 great big. Stories. Do you think, finally, is there any sense that it is reaching its its limits? Does that has that alerted people to start covering their tracks, or do you think there are just too many potential sources? Is it too late to put the cat <laughs> in, back in the bag? Do you think?
3: I think. I mean, my sense is when when they describe how they work. I mean, it's uh, some of it to a uh, you know. I mean, I'm, a, I'm I'm not a technophobe. I'm a technophile, but I'm but I'm that's you know I'm a long way from being expert. And somehow, some sometimes when they, they describe their techniques, so that you know um, uh, there is you know just a, a field where somebody has been beheaded or whatever, and, and they have to work out where that field is, and they, and the, they look at the sort of the angle of the sun, and, the, uh, and then they they start um, working out where, you know where the shadows are falling, and that 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 there's a there's an anonymous building on the skyline. They did it rather amazingly. With um, there were some pictures uh, after um, cruise liners stopped going into Venice. Somebody posted a picture on Twitter saying look, there are there are fresh fish in the in the lagoons and the, the canals of Venice, and they had almost nothing to go on, and yet they managed to identify I- exactly where this bridge was and where the picture had been taken, uh, and I, I think. I and mean, we know now that it's so difficult to cover our digital tracks, that the the, the the digital clues out there are so prolific that it's not going to be easy to put this particular Bellingcat back into the bag or whatever the um, awful pun is.
2: <laughs> I was, sorry, I was reaching somehow for the awful pun. <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> no. It wasn't quite there. Yes, I see what you mean. So that it's... Um, be, everybody knows what they're up to, but equally everybody knows what everybody's up to in a way because uh, because everything is so traceable. Yeah, I mean, you know, it.
3: occasionally you read those pieces in newspapers where a journalist says, no, I'm, I'm going to live for a life, live for a week without le- le- leading, le- leaving any digital clue at all. And usually by Wednesday, they've given up. It's just impossible. So um, uh, I, I fear... We are doomed to leaving digital trails behind us, and as long as we do that, there will people be people like Elliot Higgins um, following down those clues.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for um, putting the clues together, and I'm sorry about the cat and the bag problem again. <laughs> <laughs> Many thanks okay. for talking You're to great. us today.
3: Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Nice to talk. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Bye bye.
0: Still to come on the show, desperately seeking Mrs Jones, Dante on the radio, Wagner's debt to the Icelandic sagas and something surprising. if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free via Apple Podcasts or pretty much any other podcast provider and you'll never miss an episode
2: Watching the end of uh, One Night in Miami
3: I was was reminded of the end of a play called uh, Abe Lincoln in Illinois by Robert E. Sherwood which ends with Lincoln having won the uh, 1860 presidential election and, and heading off to Washington, and people are in tears at the end of that story because they know what's coming. You know what's coming is civil war and, and Lincoln's assassination.
2: I think those these those labels I just I, I, they all really annoy me. Actually, I find them fantastically unhelpful because they are they're either used to punch up or punch down. And really, it just means that a lot of people enjoyed reading the book. Well, then Hilary Mantel is middle-brown, so is Shakespeare, and so is Ulysses. A lot of people have enjoyed Ulysses. Actually, that you probably can't make that case. I, may yeah. I mean, there is you... point. <laughs>
4: <laughs> One of the things I've noticed since the book's been knocking about on social media, in terms of like me putting out, Uh, pictures of the cover and talking about it is a few people have said oh I don't know whether or not I'm interested but I don't know if I'd be happy reading that in public it's kind of provocative title yes but I think that's primarily about my sort of unvarnished use of the word Jew rather than Jewish person although it's interesting how naff it would sound to say Jewish people don't count as a title but Jews don't count much
3: more power and part of that power is to do with the negativity
4: and the negative energy that I think surrounds the work.
5: There is a very sort of strong version that you often
2: hear that classics is always legitimates the conservative, you know, Prince Charles, conservative architecture, classical architecture, right? Well, what about the ways that classics are sanctioned deviants? Can I have a I'm thinking of D. H. Lawrence immediately. That might be, I think I'm that thinking it. about Catullus. All these would be very good starts to your essay. So, Can I do my essay on number 10, please? <laughs> <We'll go fantastic laughs> yeah. Can I just say that actually on Mary's blog, all 10 questions are there. So if people want to, to look at all 10 questions, that's where they are. People are allowed to choose their own, though Professor yeah. has chosen one for you. Answers on a
0: postcard, a really, really long one. So more, <laughs> a really more of a
2: scroll, time. really. <laughs> you have one hour only. That's not enough.
0: Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Stylian Arduzzi. And before we go in pursuit of Keats' mysterious Mrs. Jones, Lucy, do you want to tell us what's going on in... The rest of the issue last week on the show you mentioned having ridden an icelandic pony and this week we're in iceland again why is that
2: just because i like iceland there nothing
0: not,
2: not related <laughs> nothing to more. tls at all no that's <laughs> not true um because uh, we do uh, we're looking at the old icelandic saga i genuinely don't know how to pronounce it Folsunga saga I'm going to say. Sounds good um, to me. Thank you. Which is, uh, thir- I think, 13th century, our uh, writer says, and it's the source of many of the um, of the human elements of the drama behind the ring cycle. There's the Nibelung, which is the, the medieval German one, which is better known. And I think that... The, uh, our reviewer Alan Davy says that that's the source of the sort of supernatural stuff and with the gods, but for the more human and earthy elements, it's this old Icelandic saga, and he talks about that and what what is done with it, what Wagner does with it in the uh, in the Ring Cycle.
0: Because if it had been if it had been more closely based on the medieval German ec- epic, it probably would have been more kind of courtly and refined, less gritty. And...
2: Yeah, he he thinks that the earlier one, the Icelandic one, is pretty sort of a, a lot of them are though pretty dark and earthy there's a lot of unpleasantness frankly let's be honest there's not there's a lot of bad behavior but yes it's not it's not courtly really at Mm. all it's it's just much more sort of primal than that I suppose and and he's saying that a lot you can you know he puts a lot of that into the ring
0: Um, and elsewhere on the radio is Dante so I mean you're kind of giving us all the perfect excuses to rest
2: our screen wearied eyes well yes and there's actually and there's a lot of wonderful stuff going on and this is a a radio program sort of asking and explaining why dante is why is dante still important in the 21st century kind of thing and it's presented by the bbc's europe editor katia adler and the the readings from the comedy are by michael sheen so it's all you know wonderful high quality and it's it's just i think it's saying what it has meant to her and why it's still relevant i think our reviewer muriel zaga felt that they kept saying well it might seem very old and dusty and religious but you know really it's terribly important but, but which she felt they didn't they didn't need to say that
0: well i mean i think that's yeah that's a general rule and I, I suppose a general temptation isn't it with these things i'm always a bit wary of things that beat us around the head with the fact that something really really old is in fact really really modern but um i suppose in the case of damp it's sort of okay because he spoke himself of having urgent things to say to those who would call his own times ancient. So you can sort of let them off the hook there a little bit.
2: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And she, um, she says, which you, you would know this um, saying that, that for Italians, now, he's he's like a living presence. It's not like, yeah. you know, it's not like a dusty. It, he's kind of everywhere.
0: Well, there's this brilliant thing, um, the Repubblica, which is one of the one of the main newspapers in Italy. And um, in December uh, last year, they they mocked up the cover of the magazine in a kind of Time magazine style, you know, with the red border, and they had a picture of Dante, and they said, and it said, "Man of the Year 2021," and because obviously this is 2021 is is a massive year for Dante. It's 700 years since his his death in 1321. So the presence the presence is very much there. He's he's, he's currency in Italy in the way that Shakespeare is currency here in T. S. Eliot, you know knew that himself he said didn't he say literature is split basically between two people Shakespeare and Dante? There, yes. there's no third
2: yeah unless he was thinking secretly or it might be me but he didn't say that. <laughs> exactly I've just <laughs> Please made that someone up.
0: interrupt me and say it's me <laughs> 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 I think that's what he was after and
2: Muriel has a lovely thing she says at the end of it there's um that they that which I haven't heard that the line of abandoned hope all ye who enter here she says it should be seen for what it is I think this is in the programme, they say it should be seen for what it is. It's a rhetorical move on his part, because in fact, he thinks that we should never give up hope.
0: Exactly. And also because, of course, because you are reading on, you pass that threshold and you know that you haven't resolved within yourself that you have no hope. So, you know, the, the sort of act of going on and reading it. Disproves the idea that there, there can be no hope, if that makes any sense.
2: Yeah, it does. It makes lots of sense. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a lovely way of looking at it, I
0: think. That sort of ties in, actually, because we've got a lot more Dante in the paper this week. We've got, um, there's a nice long piece by Peter Hainsworth, and he's reviewing a recent book by the American academic John Tuke, and there's another one by um, Enrico Malato, who's one of Italy's leading Dante scholars. And one of the most interesting ideas that Peter Hainsworth points to is uh, this theory of Tuke's. Of the work of the commedia as being an invitation to readers to participate in uh, the generation of meaning so he says the imagery is a way of getting beyond abstract statements so religious or philosophical or political into uh, he says involve the reader in the creation of meaning with you know and there's loads of interpretive freedom involved in that because even in the 14th century the work needed decoding you know he, he emphasizes that it was it was It's not new, this thing of needing to find our way into it and try to work out what it means. And Peter Hainsworth points out, he says, the the boundaries between the literal and the metaphorical, the historical and the fantastic, the personal and the symbolic are constantly shifting. And the references, the names, the ideas, all of those things would have been almost as unfamiliar to 14th century readers as they are to us today. So this would seem to explain why it is, you know, to sort of go back and, and further prove Katja Adler's Point in in her BBC series, you know, it would seem to explain why it is that this text does keep on giving, does remain relevant without trying almost, and and does lend itself so well to video games and comic books and the visual arts and so many other forms.
2: But yeah, because because you're you're also doing the work and you're also making the journey.
0: Exactly, exactly. One exists sort of. It's 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 there's something very modern about that theory of, of decentering the author in that way. I think the work almost doesn't exist, he's saying, without you entering and inhabiting the, the space of it. And so
2: then, in fact, he becomes Virgil and you become Dante,
0: sort of? Something like that, yeah. Not really? Sort of. Something <laughs> sort like of. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, what else have we got? Um, there's a piece on the poetic relationship between the Italian writer Eugenio Montale and T.S. Eliot, who we've already mentioned, um, how they both drew, albeit very differently, on uh, the work of you guessed it Dante but maybe we should mention something else um, Lucy surprise us
2: well I'll tell you what the thing that I thought was very interesting one of the many things I thought was very interesting this week is because we're, we're talking about European literature and um, this is a book which we reviewed in German I think It actually came out in French as well. I don't know whether that was later. I'm a bit hazy about the dates, I'm afraid. By a writer called Anne Weber. And in German, it's called Annette, so I'll pronounce this wrongly, Ein Held in an Epos, which is like a heroine's epic. And it's about a real woman who is called Annette Beaumanoir, or maybe Anne Beaumanoir, who was in the resistance, then became a neurophysiologist, and then went to work for the um, Algerian National Liberation Front because she was horrified at the way her government was treating um, Algeria, then put on trial and sentenced to prison, then escaped, uh, went to Switzerland, then went back to France. So, so it's a sort of remarkable story. And, and it sounds like a remarkable work because it's written, I, th- I, th- I think as a sort of epic poem and it's constantly questioning motives and if somebody behaves badly, some, at some point, sometimes uh, she says, well, maybe somebody else would have done the same thing in their place. You know, maybe this is understandable. And and there's a lot of ways of looking at the subject. And she's a very interesting writer because she writes in French and German sort of all the time. She translates between the two. Uh, and as I say, I think she's uh, her French version has come out as well. And that she has such a tight grip on both of the languages
0: suggests that there's plenty of scope for wordplay which i'm a total sucker for
2: (laughs) yes yeah and it actually would be if you had the time and the um language skills which i certainly do not be really interesting to put the two of them next to each other i think
0: i mean i'd like to think that i could read the french one but i probably can't so i might have to i'm rather rusty so i suspect i'll have to wait for someone to to take up the challenge and translate it into english if that's not already underway Uh, Perhaps someone will write in and let us know that it is. Reassure us that the work is being done.
2: Well, it won a prize. It won the Deutsche Buchpreis last year. So, um, you know, it clearly has got got some um, favourable attention. So, yeah, let's hope.
0: Well, that bodes well. Um, Now to John Keats, or rather to Mrs Jones, a woman many have tried and failed to get to know. Jonathan Bate, the author most recently of Bright Star, Green Light, The Beautiful Works and Damned Lives of John Keats and F. Scott Fitzgerald, has taken up the chase this week and joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello, Jonathan.
4: Hello there, Pierre. Hi.
0: Hi. Um, now, this story begins with one of the most, as you say, marvellous passages in Keats's letters, which records an encounter that took place in October 1818 in London. Um, could you put the contents of the letter in a, a nutshell for us? It's not too small and plain in a nutshell, you know, do feel free to quote liberally as you say it's it's a wonderful thing.
4: Yeah I, I mean I think it is my favorite letter of John Keats I mean you know the greatest letter writer among all the English poets. So he gives uh, his, his brother and sister-in-law are in America so he writes them these long letters that are almost like journals and um, he he says since uh, since I last wrote I've seen again uh, a woman doesn't name her, um, who I met once before. In fact, he said, uh, "When, when I met her before, it was at Hastings and I warmed with her and kissed her. And he describes how he bumps into this woman in the street um, and sort of walks past her, then turns back, and then they get into conversation and they walk together. And they they walk to Islington um, to visit a friend of hers who keeps a school. And then they walk back into uh, the area of London that is now Bloomsbury. um, And they go up to her her rooms uh, in Queen's Square and Keats gives this marvellous description um, of, of, of the room. Um, there's caged birds, an aeolian harp. You know, that's uh, Coleridge wrote a famous poem about the aeolian harp, a kind of fashionable musical instrument that if you put it on your windowsill, the wind would start making music out of it. And she had sheet music and books and a cabinet of liqueurs. She was obviously a, a woman of great style and sophistication. And then Keats sort of is on the brink of kissing her again, and she says, uh, "No, not this time," um, and sends him away. Uh, but gives him some some game, presumably some grouse or partridge, um, to give to his to to his brother Tom, who, who who was actually dying of tuberculosis at the time. And then later in the same journal letter, he says that um, she she sent game uh, to him again, but then she sort of disappears from from the record
0: and you're you're not the first to seek the identity of this kind of wonderful musical purveyor of game <laughs> um, what uh, so what are you building on here you know what are some of the main theories about who who this unnamed woman is
4: yeah that's right I mean she she wasn't really sort of noticed or talked about um, in Keats biography until the 1950s Um, when the great biographer Robert Gittings um, wrote his life of uh, Keats in particularly focusing on this extraordinary year of creativity between the autumn of 1818 and the autumn of 1819, during which Keats wrote nearly all his greatest poems. and I think this is one of the reasons why Mrs Jones is so interesting, that the encounter is just at the beginning of that year. And indeed, it's it's worth saying that um, one of Keats's friends made a note that the idea for the poem, the Eve of St Agnes, uh, in some ways I think the first of Keats's truly great poems, was given to him by Mrs Jones. So, Gittings started um, uh, exploring, trying to see what he could find out about her, and he got information from the poet and biographer Edmund Blunden, uh, Blunden, fine writer himself, of course, a First World War writer who had. A, a subsequent career as a literary scholar and biographer. Um, Blunden had written the biography of John Taylor, who was Keats's editor. Extraordinarily important man in the culture of the time, John Taylor, because he was the one who recognized Keats's talent and indeed the talent of the great agricultural laborer poet John Clare. Um, And Blunden discovered in the Taylor archive, there were some letters from a Mrs. Isabella Jones to John Taylor, and it was clear that they were good friends, Um, and it also mentions in one of her letters that she Spent the summer in Hastings, so um, Gittings, on this basis, puts two and two together and sees that this woman, Isabella Jones, clearly is uh, the, the the Mrs. Jones uh, of. Keats's letters and indeed um, there's a rather beautiful letter she writes to Taylor Keats's publisher after Keats's death because Taylor has shown her the letter written by another friend of Keats the artist Joseph Severn who was with him at his deathbed in Rome uh, his letter describing Keats's death and Taylor has shown it uh, to Mrs Jones and uh, she's she's responded and talked about poor Keats so there's no doubt um, that Isabella Jones, Mrs. Jones, as they keep calling her, no doubt that she is the woman, but who she was, how old she was, what her background was, what she was doing, living alone in these rooms in Queen Square, um, nobody could quite work out. And Gittings, I think, followed one particular red herring that uh, uh, I've sort of tracked down and it it, it doesn't work. So uh, I thought in writing this new biography of keats you know there's very few new facts to discover about him but if i could find the identity of mrs jones that would really be something
0: and so you you find as you as you as you do this um as you say your aim being to sort of piece together who who this woman was not in terms of what her name was but in terms of what kind of life she had um you find that much hinges, doesn't it, on, on this title, on, on the title, Mrs.
4: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right, because all previous biographers have tended to assume that she was a widow, um, and, you know, they've looked for, was there a, um, you know, a Captain Jones of the Army or somebody who had died and left her as a young widow? But again, they've all proved to be dead ends, those, um, those potential leads. Um, but I was struck, looking closely at the Keats letter, he describes her... Uh, as one of the only two women of his own age whom he had ever met, who he felt that he could have a, a real sort of intellectual friendship with. The other one was his sister-in-law in, uh, who went to America with his, his, his brother. Um, a woman of my own age. Ke- Keats is in his early 20s at the time. Of course, she could have been a young widow. But then I thought, well, hang on, that title, Misses. I've done a lot of work on the theater in the early 19th century. And Mrs was a title that was conferred on actresses and singers to give them respectability. The stage was still quite a disreputable profession at that time, especially for women. So Mrs was a way of giving respectability. The most famous example, of course, would be the great comic actress Mrs Jordan, who subsequently became the mistress of and bore, what was it, ten children to the future King William. So I began searching stage records to see if there was a Mrs Jones on the stage. And lo and behold, I found at exactly the period we're talking about, um, someone called Mrs. Jones uh, came from the provincial theater in Cheltenham, where she had had considerable success as a singer and mild success as an actress. She came to London, she made her debut, uh, but after a couple of performances, she disappears from the record. But it, it just struck me that the that sense of, of the wit in her letters, her independent-mindedness, the fact that there's all this music in her rooms, I thought perhaps she is Mrs Jones, the singer and actress who briefly appeared on the London stage and then vanished. Um, and so I then did some more research on... Uh, uh, actresses, singers and private performances at the time. And one does discover uh, that it was quite possible um, for a singer, um, and it was her singing more than her acting um, that that Mrs. Jones uh, was was celebrated for. Um, A singer could make a living doing private performances at sort of soirees and evening parties. And indeed, um, one of the letters to Keats's publisher suggests that she held soirees herself.
2: She was clearly a very um, sort of cultured and arty woman, wasn't she? He has that wonderful um, in the letter. He has that wonderful description of her room and her sitting room, and he says it's a very tasty sort of place. <laughs> With uh, as you say, it's got the Olean harp and it's got lots of books and music and a, a statue of Bonaparte, which I would have thought would be a bit um, a bit sort of radical, wouldn't it, for eighteen
4: eighteen? Yeah, absolutely. The, the um, well. Don't get me started on the Bonaparte possession because that, that was also an obsession of Keats's great friend, uh, William Hazlitt. A lot of people still had their little statues of Bonaparte uh, even, even after Waterloo. But yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's something about the stylishness of her room. Uh, Act together with the stylishness of these letters uh, which are full of literary and theatrical references, the letters she writes to, to Keats's publisher. Now of course the problem is that because uh, actresses um, were known as Mrs Jones, M- Mrs Jordan and so on, unless they became very well known or unless other records survive, it's actually very difficult to find out their first names. So I cannot prove that my Mrs. Jones, the actress and singer, was Keats' Mrs. Jones because I haven't found the silver bullet, the bit of evidence of her first name. If we actually found her name was not Isabella. We know Keats is Mrs Jones was Isabella because of the references and the letters to his publisher. Then this is yet another dead end, yet another red herring like the one that all the previous biographers have found. The infuriating thing about the Covid lockdown um, is that I can't get to the archive of the Theatre Royal Cheltenham where she made her debut because if there's evidence anywhere um, of the first name of my Cheltenham singer who was brought to London, it, it, it would be there so uh, my um, my piece um that that i've written which is which I, i've sort of grown from spun off from my recent book um in this week's tls it it ends by saying you know this 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 is a gamble it's a speculation and if some learned tls reader discovers um that actually my mrs jones who performed on the stage with the great Edmund Keane, the greatest actor of the age, who Keats was obsessed with. If she wasn't Isabella, then I'm afraid um, I've led you all up the garden path. But <laughs> who cares? Because it's such a wonderful letter where he describes her room.
0: What a, what a tantalising sense of, of to be continued. Um, I wonder if behind this story, you know, partial as it is, there's there's a sadness here as well, Um When Fanny arrives on the scene, Mrs. Jones pretty much disappears from Keats's paint box, doesn't she? Or is that sadness a projection, do you think? I might... You know, I might say it suggests a certain expendability. You mentioned the precarity of the actor's life, but she might say it cuts both ways. And and she was free and didn't want to be Keats's missus.
4: Well, I th- I think that's absolutely right. What I, what I really like about Mrs. Jones is the fact that um, when she's um, down in Hastings, and who knows, maybe she's she's got a, she's doing a performance down there. Um, she's very happy to have a bit of a kiss and a fondle with Keats. Um, back in London, uh, she takes him up to her room and she shows him the. Room and enjoys talking to him. But when he makes a pass at her, she said she says, no thanks. This is this is a woman who who's in control of her body, in control of her destiny, in control of her independence. Um, and I, I think there is a certain wistfulness in the way Keats writes about her. Um, and uh, in some ways, uh it, did he actually fall in love with Fanny Braun on the rebound? Because it's only a few weeks later. Um, that he begins to get to know Fanny. He spends Christmas um, that year with the Braun family. Um, and Fanny, you know, she's a lively enough girl, but uh, she's she, she's not quite in the league of Mrs Jones.
2: It's also, it's a very romantic story, isn't it? First they meet at the seaside and then he he just walks past her in London and then decides to turn around. And I mean, it's almost rom-com, isn't it? That's yeah, ab- of... Absolutely right,
4: yeah. <laughs> and again, I mean, the other nice thing was he, he's, he, he did actually say, there was one other time before that meeting in the streets where he met her. And where was it when he was at the Lyceum Theatre? So there's no doubt that she's kind of moving in that theatre world.
0: So, um, I mean, you mentioned the lockdown uh, stopping you getting to the archive that, that you wanted to. Do you feel you are done with the story of Mrs Jones now. I mean, you know, the idea of her as this professional pretender, perhaps, it's, it's the ultimate taunt or challenge to biographers still, surely.
4: Oh, it, uh, ab- ab- absolutely it is. And uh, yeah, no, I sh- I shall not rest <laughs> or cease from, from mental fight and archival exploration until I find out whether she is or is not my actress come singer
0: Well, uh, Jonathan Bate, many thanks for joining us. A pleasure. Is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Alan Rusbridger and Jonathan Bate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye.
4: Imperfect
3: with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Bake Off winner, TV chef and author
4: Naudia Hussein reveals the violent racial abuse she suffered as a British Bangladeshi in 1980s Luton, her struggles with mental health. And how baking has changed her life.
0: Racism and that kind of unconscious bias exists in every industry. And so now that I'm in them, I see the problem with them is that there is nobody else.
4: Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Nadia Hussein, in her own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app,
1: or
3: wherever you get your podcasts.